Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hey Man, It's Okay. Uh, today, we have a wonderful show for you. We are missing our main co-host. He wasn't able to make it today, but we have a great guest for you. Uh, his name is Josh Garth. Hey there, Josh. How are you doing today? i uh, doing pretty good. How are things going for you, Ryan? Good, good. Good to see you again. So, yeah, mm -hmm. you too, actually. I just recently moved offices and I'm now next door neighbors again with Josh. We, uh, yeah. we were next door neighbors a couple of years back. Yeah. And now, now we get to bug each other again. It's been great because uh, I've felt a bit siloed on the other side of the building and uh, we're, we've reconnected, reunited, and it feels so good. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like I, I wasn't able to really see you too often, but now I see you almost too much. <laughs> there's no such thing there's no such thing yeah. so one of the main reasons we wanted to bring josh in today is josh kind of specializes in working with uh, young men probably uh primarily and uh i don't know josh why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself who are you uh, maybe a little bit about your practice yeah absolutely so i'm a marriage and family therapy associate I work with people who struggle with gaming addiction. Typically, it's uh, young males in their mid-20s. And my like the way I conceptualize things now has kind of shifted quite a bit. I used to only work specifically with the individuals who would excessively uh, game. So, you know, people who would spend most of their time on their computers or on consoles, play eight, nine, ten hours a day, something like that. And that didn't go so terribly well if the person wasn't really motivated to do something about their actual gaming addiction. And what has worked out quite well for me is the people who contact me are usually like a parent of the person who excessively games. So there is already technically structure in place, but I've been looking at it more as like a family dynamic that can give that young male structure. And what I've been noticing is that seems to be a major issue that hadn't really been dealt with. And so when I'm looking at this, when it comes to, to gaming addiction, I see this, this lack of family structure. And it's really interesting because it, it's not just the, the addiction part is more just a result, right? Of what's been going on in the family. And so I've been looking about what the, the other effects, other results that can occur from a family structure that's not doing so well. And there's many other things too that kind of go along with this. Uh, you and I had talked about prior about porn addiction that, that goes along with this. There seems to be a lack of motivation to start the person's life. Adolescence has now crept past 18, 19, 20, almost up until like 30 years old, right? Which is really interesting because generations prior we're looking at people who couldn't wait to get the hell out of their parents' house at the age of like 18, 19 years old. And now it seems like there's a lack of that want, right? I mean, there's a whole lot that we can talk about there, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that in terms of like uh, what my practice is. Yeah. And I'm really curious as to what you think some of the causes are that have created some of these issues. But maybe before we dive too much into that, what was it that brought you into working with this population? Well, actually, I still am a, a gaming addict, although I'm no longer in active addiction. I've been sober for over two and a half years now. But I would be one of those uh, teenagers in high school, even through college, where I'd play until like four or five o'clock in the morning. And I noticed for myself that things weren't going so well. 
other part of it too was I noticed emotionally I didn't really connect with people too well and there was something lacking with me. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I was unhappy at the time. Another part of this too is I didn't really have a good uh, support system. I didn't realize what therapy actually was until I'd finally gone to, to see a therapist. I'm like, dude, this is what I've been wanting my entire life. Growing up, I grew up in a very chaotic household where on one side of uh, my parents, my mom was very inconsistent. And a lot of what was going on with her is she would behave based on how her emotions were kind of guiding her. And then I had you know, my dad who would essentially back away. He wasn't invested at all. So there was no stability at all in that household. I didn't know who to go to. I would clam up. I felt like there wasn't much, like what was going on with me wasn't valued too much. And so I just stayed to myself. A high rate of depression in me, anxiety too socially. It took a really long time for me to understand why that was. And it turns out because I didn't value myself, I thought everyone else was just judging me as being some stupid person who essentially had no value. So how early did the addictions kind of start or what, how oh, early was man. it when games really took a hold? I started playing probably when I was like five years old. I don't know if you can imagine this, but do you remember what like the classic Game Boys look like? Like the classic, of course, classic yes, ones? The black and white. Yeah, the original were, black and white ones. The, yeah. the gray one, it was like a brick, but the screen was like this big. Uh-huh. What uh-huh. I would do Tetris is I'd be the best games there. <laughs> very, yeah, Tetris. <laughs> Whatever game I could get my hand on could have been Pokemon or Mario or whatnot. My brother would be playing. I would put my head over his shoulder on the couch. And it was like, like I, he had two heads on his body at that point, And we were both watching him play Game Boy. And so after a while, I realized this is a great place for me to kind of escape from things. And so after Game Boy, went to N64, PlayStation, like there, it just took off from there. Like that's, I was a gaming addict all the way back back then because it was just a way for me to get away from you know the chaos that was ensuing in my house just out of curiosity was your brother also did he use the same escape yeah but not nearly to the degree that i did he actually had somewhat of a social life and at school it seemed like he had plenty of friends he would go out all the time actually for both of my older brothers they seemed to try and escape the chaos by literally removing themselves physically from it for me, it was just, I would hold up in my room, play my games, and that was it. Hopefully, my mom and dad didn't notice me. That was it. And and it sounds like they didn't notice. They didn't understand how big of an issue the gaming was for me. And I mm-hmm. think they were dealing with their own problems, so they weren't too focused on it, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, I know we're still kind of going down your journey here, but at what point mm-hmm. did you first start to see a therapist, and did he kind of <laughs> shed some light on this problem? There have been uh, two therapists that I've had. At 14 years old, I had one. She was okay. I mean, it was great because I was able to, you know, that was the one place I felt safe enough to really talk about emotionally what was going on with me and like everything that was going on in my life. Someone who is neutral, who would be willing to listen to me. That was such a, a huge part. I don't know if I really got uh, really like, like drive with her too much. But later on, when I was in uh, college, I was like, you know what? Like, I need to go see a therapist and hopefully this time it's going to be good. I've been in therapy ever since. And it's not because of some crisis or anything like that. It has been very helpful for me. And even though the goals I initially had when I started have been finished, there's just other things that I get from it nowadays. 
it's that safe place where I can go and just kind of unload everything that's going on with me. Yeah, I saw my ther- my therapist just uh, a couple hours ago, and uh, it's one of the things I look forward to during the week the most. Yeah, I feel like there's always room for growth in our life, and for me, there's always something you know that I can talk about, just either unload or get a unbiased, well, probably somewhat biased perspective, <laughs> but <laughs> but definitely getting uh, an observer there. Yeah, yeah. I like someone who's able to call me out on my shit too. And it's done in a way that's out of like care and respect. You know, there's that love from a therapist that comes because you're both hoping that you get better. You gain some insight. Yeah. And my favorite therapists have always been the ones that have uh, the ability to call me out on my shit in that loving way. Yeah. I've really noticed because I work at a drug treatment facility as well. Some of the clients will let me know that some therapists in the past will play it too safe, right? Where it seems like, not that they're not invested, but maybe they're too scared to take a risk, right? Moving that relationship to the next level where maybe it does require you to call them out on something. And by the way, I found that with uh, with my clients, I, well, maybe it's just like young men in general. I don't know what it is. It does seem like there's a fear to take risks nowadays, that the fear I'm going to be wrong and maybe made to look stupid or prove, maybe it's you're going to prove that I am incompetent to move my life forward in the way that I feel like I need to, or in some cases, the way other people think that I should. And Well, did you find that in your own life, like the fear of taking risks primarily or maybe oh, because yes. you oh were my gosh. You know, siloed? Yeah. And- yeah, absolutely. Since I would, I'd coop myself up, and again, I didn't really find too much value in who I was. I didn't really think I had much to bring to the table. I was afraid that I didn't have it would take to have a job, to have a girl, you know, romantic partner, girlfriend, to have friends. I I always felt like I would not meet expectations. It, it very strangely for other people. And it's weird because I also felt like my expectations had to match their expectations, which talk about codependence. Holy moly, man. And I noticed, I did notice that in myself for sure. Uh, there was, it was this weird fear that I would not be able to, you know, be that person who could work like eight hours total. Okay. Really strange thing. My first job, I worked at a movie theater and when like when I was scheduled my first shift, it was like this eight hour shift and you know, you're next to food. One of my fears was like, dude, like how am I going to work this long without eating? It was completely irrational. Right. And I didn't have that experience. Like I, since I hadn't taken the risk before, I didn't know what it meant to actually go that long working, put it like focusing on something. Cause now I know I can focus for a long period of time and not need to really eat, right? I'm completely mm-hmm. focused in and dialed in on something. Because I was so afraid to take the risk, like I never developed that kind of focus and endurance at that point. Well, what a crazy revelation and also insight into just into taking this risk and getting out kind of for the first time. How old were you when you first made that jump into your first job and, and maybe sort of getting out of the comforts of the home? Of home? Uh, my first official job was uh, 16 years old. I had a ton of anxiety just because I felt like, okay, now I'm really going to be judged. And I this image in my head that there would be like like micromanagers. So they'd be looking at every small detail, every action and 
behavior I, I'd make. The only reason I was able to take that jump, as you put it, into like getting outside of uh, my house and myself, my brother John, because he had taken that risk. He left our home when he was like 15. He went to go live at his friend's home. Yeah. My brother Jeremy uh, was, I think he, he was kicked out. He, he didn't leave, but uh, when he was 14 years old, and he also went to live at a friend's house as well. And John luckily ended up at a friend's house where the dad was a very much like a, a go-getter. And so John found that there were other, like he didn't have to be afraid, right? Like he was able to follow this example. And so when he came to live back home with me, when he was, I think about 18 years old, he was like, all right, here's some things that you need to do. Cause I know mom and dad aren't going to do them for you. Let's get you a driver's license, right? And uh, let's also have you uh, apply to uh, get some work. And so I didn't even have to question him at that point. I was like, all right, it seems like he knows what he's doing. My brother had found structure and learned a little bit more or gained some confidence in himself at that point. Wow. Do you mind if I ask what was going on in your parents' life that I guess maybe distracted sure. them and, and if too close to home? No, it's perfectly fine. My mom has a borderline personality disorder. For those who don't know, just think of people who are emotionally volatile. They could be uh, your friend. They, they'll become your friend very quickly when, when you first meet them. You can almost do no wrong. And then not too long after that, they could hate you beyond belief. And so what happened is the household became about managing whatever emotionality she had at that point. My dad was someone who he completely disconnected from the house. Yeah, there's one time I remember I was just bullshitting through some project I was doing and it was about uh, some state or something like that. And I was like, all right, hey, uh, dad. And he's sitting over on the couch over here. I'm like, hey, Kansas is about uh, 2000 foot of elevation, right? And he didn't even look away from the TV. And he's just like, yeah, it sounds about right. And just like kept on watching. And that point for me, I'm like, okay, so he doesn't care, right? So we have this completely like unbridled emotionality that causes chaos and and emotional distress for almost everyone else in the household and then we have someone who's supposed to be their partner who just like he just wants to get relief he himself is taking care of himself the best he can and doesn't really have much bandwidth for you know his family at that point that's why i had essentially receded into myself with the gaming because i didn't want to have to deal with that stuff either yeah. It was too much for me. You know, it's kind of characterized often by everybody walking on eggshells around, uh, you know, and having to manage your mom's emotions. I, I've had a handful of clients who have actually gone through very similar uh, experiences. And it's also incredibly invalidating oftentimes for the child too. And then they have to, you know, struggle with kind of learning to identify and manage emotions usually at a much, much later date. I feel like that often comes out in that kid's first relationship. Usually, you know, when they go to college and they're in a totally different dynamic and now all of a sudden they're having all these intense emotions and, but, you know, throughout most of their mm -hmm. childhood, they've been told, you know, that that sadness, well, like if they skin their knee, right, you know, and it hurts, they're told to suck it up and feel fine. And if they get an A on a test and they're super proud and they want to show their parents, they're also told, yeah, that's nice, but you also got to be on this. And, you know, there's no reason to be happy. And so, you know, we're kind of our emotional range kind of gets squashed, you know, into here this, this throughout childhood. And then when, you know, we finally go out on our own, it's all over the place. And 
we're having to relearn kind of all the uh, uh, that emotional intelligence. Yeah, Ryan, you kind of brought up something, and uh, I could tell you my philosophy when I'm I'm dealing with uh, young people. Just like the the background that I, I kind of see of of like uh, how we got to this point, where you know young men do have unique struggles, and I had been bouncing this around for a while. At some point, I think it was after the depression, there was this idea that if we talk about father of the household back then. Uh, you know, we had moms stay at home. They would take care of the kids, the the home and, and all that stuff. And then dad would go out and work and do what he did to make sure the family, the family could survive. It wasn't just about bringing home money. So, you know, there's luxury. It was, it was literally survival at that point. And so the idea that the parents had was, well, I'm going to make sure that my kid has a better life than I do. So they scrape, they scrounge, they try and do whatever they can to build this life that's better. I'm going to give them the opportunities I didn't have. I have this shitty job I don't like doing. I don't want them to have to work like 12 hours a day getting massive blisters and being out in the sun and, and all that. Let's make it so that they can do something that they don't have to endure the, this turmoil. Now, by the way, we'll talk about struggle later. What happens is we've gotten to the point where we have it pretty good. Honestly, when it comes to like younger males now uh, nowadays, middle class and even below that, we now have these lives where it we don't have to go out when we're like 13 years old and start working, right? Like we're able to kind of stay in a bit more. And I say we because I'm thinking of myself at at that age. I didn't have to leave home when I was that young. I was able to stay in and actually go to college and all that. And the interesting piece about this is now the opportunities that, you know, parents think about, let's have them go to college. Let's get them educated. We're going to have them, they'll be able to have a job that makes six figures. They'll be in an office or something like that, that has air conditioning. And so I'm, they're going to be thrilled. They'll be able to use the opportunities that I've provided for them. So then there came this expectation of, I'm going to make this life as safe for you as possible. I'm going to make it comfortable. There's going to be almost no adversity that you need to get through in order to have these opportunities. So now we have expectations that, you know, kids are going to take the opportunities that parents give them. And that opportunity usually looks like, okay, go to college, which by the way, you can't just tell an 18 year old to go to college. I'm going to tell you that right now. Do you think they know exactly what they need to do in college? When they haven't had to do no, any of it at home. Right. Their brain's mush at that point. 18 years old, did you know that you wanted to spend sixty to $100,000 on a degree? Like, did, did you know that you were going to get that and it was going to pay off? I mean, if you're asking me personally, it took years for me. It took, I spent four years at junior college and wavered around, had no idea kind of what I wanted to do. I, I must have come up with 10 different ideas of what my career path looked like. And, you know, sometimes I'd take two classes, sometimes I'd take four or five. Sometimes I take a semester off. Yeah, not a clue. Even though, you know, most of my life I was thinking about what that next step was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you nowadays, most, uh, most kids that age actually fear it because they have no idea. With college also, and with those opportunities came too much choice. And I think that's uh, one of the, the big problems uh, we have nowadays is, I hate to say it th uh, this way, but Back in the day, you'd usually take after a family trade or something that resembled it closely, or you knew someone and you wanted to get into their business. Nowadays, it's go to college, 
life is your oyster. And now they have 10,000, 100,000 different uh, kind of jobs, careers, education paths to go down. How does anyone know what they're going to choose? And the question I always get is, how do I know what the right one is? That's a huge problem. What do you mean by right one, right? How do you define what the right career path is? And when we have that much choice, right, we're then kind of often paralyzed or a lot of times then we'll make that choice and then feel like, oh, we second guess it all. And, you know, sometimes go back and wish we would have done a different one, often leaving us unhappy with the choice that we made or the path that we're making, right? As far as my career went, I completely fell into it for, you know, the first half of my life. And it took, you know, when I, I had to rebuild, it took three, almost four years for me to decide, you know, that I wanted to be a therapist. And in many ways, I kind of fell into that too. So, yeah. Right. Right. And so that specific point of not knowing what someone wants to do with their life, having that much opportunity and being paralyzed, because that's the uh, the fear that that I was talking about with myself as well, being paralyzed to kind of make like a decision, Right because you don't want to choose the wrong one. And the way it gets framed, especially with young people, is this is going to affect the rest of my life. Once I go down this path, I won't really have another way to go, which by the way, isn't true. I mean, there's plenty of people who they'll switch careers if it's not good for them, but they don't want to get it wrong. There's also this fear of, you know, not if I don't choose the right one, then I've wasted all that time. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's, a lot it's not of money. working out for me. I mean, it's a serious investment, especially if you Absolutely. go away to college. Oh yeah. And also the idea that they have to go away to college. That's a whole nother conversation probably, but I always try and leave the option open. It's like, okay, so let's say you don't go to college. What do you think you would want to do? And a lot of the times they still say, I don't know. And then I ask them, it's like, all right, have you tried any hands-on work before? Because a lot of kids um, that are my clients, they've had difficulty in school. They're not great students. And then when it comes to college, at least in high school and before that, there was structure, right? Where essentially you had to go to school. You had to. You got to go up at 8 a.m. Yeah. College is nothing. College yeah. is your own responsibility. It's a dramatic <laughs> shift in taking <laughs> care of yourself. And parents nowadays, parents, please forgive me if you watch this, but it, there's too much of planning their life for them. There's too much of that, the hands-on part of it, where it's more you about you reminding them, right? And then when it comes to that time of switching to take responsibility for themselves, they don't really have that nowadays. It's such a dramatic swing at that point. There's been a lot of clients I've had where if we talk about going away to school, they completely fall apart. There's no more mom and dad aren't around anymore. I'm going to party my face off or I'm for my clients. It's more like I'm going to game my face off mm -hmm. where they just they ditch classes and, and that's it. So in general, you're, a few of the things that seem like some of the roots of this issue is a general like lack of preparedness, lack of parental or uh, family structure, and also just being overwhelmed by too many choices. Yeah, that's a good summary right there. That being overwhelmed, too many choices. I think that's a really important piece of this because if we put on the expectation, and we'll call it expectations of the self as well, like no one wants to fail, right? And so when we get this black and white thinking of either I'm going to fail or not, that can be very, very paralyzing because now it's a swim or sink situation. And for many of um, them, they've, 
they've never had to fail or they've been saved. Mm -hmm. Anytime that they were going to fail and have to maybe pick themselves up on their own, they had a parent that broke that fall or made the the climbing back, the resilience. They kind of took the skill that the child would have learned in that in finding that resilience on their own, and they kind of took that away from them. Absolutely. Uh, in my practice, I call that struggling well, learning how to struggle well, learning how to get over or get through barriers or being able to identify obstacles and seeing if it's worth taking them on or not, right? It's a, that's a really important piece. What are some of the struggles that you have, you know, a family or a client comes to you, he's been gaming 80, 90 hours, 100 hours a week, something, you know, like that. How do you first, I don't know, get through to them? How do you build rapport and then kind of tear that, you know, controller, I guess, away from them? Am I saying that right? I know it just working with somebody recently and was rather afraid to kind of point out his gaming addiction for fear of one, kind of losing that trust and that rapport that I had that I'd no longer kind of be on his side. I think I was afraid that I'd now, you know, be taking the parent's side, but it was also very apparent that gaming was first in his life over everything else. Yeah. The first and foremost is we need to take the illusion away that uh, gaming is something that people don't become addicted to. There have been many clients I've had where they'll go, they've been to therapy before and the therapist doesn't pay mind to it. They say, oh, you're gaming. That's actually probably a good thing. It's like, well, how often are they gaming? When do they game? Right. Uh, what are they doing instead to game? Or maybe they're not. We probably shouldn't get too into it, but I know, especially with porn, there's a whole, there's part of our industry or part of our field that doesn't even like to use the word addiction, right? That it's because it's not necessarily a, a biological addiction, similarly to uh, substances. So yeah, even, even the so. process of calling it out can be difficult. Yeah. Well, bringing up porn, by the way, if you really want to get nothing done in one day, play a bunch of video games, watch porn, masturbate, and then also smoke some weed, and you'll get nothing done that day. There's nothing productive coming from your life. And porn porn kind of goes hand in hand with gaming, especially for like stimulus. Gaming itself provides its own like pseudo rewards of, of satisfaction, completion. And I conceptualize that in you have your online identity and then you have your real life identity. The point where gaming becomes an addiction is where you value that online identity more than you do your real life identity, right? Where you're putting more time into it, you feel like you get more from it rather than what's going on in your own life. And then with porn, uh, why would you need a partner? You can get anything you want to, even more, right? Things that you never imagined of, uh, you can get online. So everything that you need is at your fingertips, so to speak. Because uh, if we were answering your question from before, so if we do identify it as being an addiction, I treat it the same as any other addiction. Parents are like, well, they've been good for two weeks or a month, right? They've been getting their homework done. I was thinking about letting them play some more. No, why would you do that? A meth addict, he's been good for a month. I feel like I should give him like a small hit of meth. No, when it's gotten to that point, no, they're going to go back into the same routine and relapse. That's There's a lot of like reframing. That's I'm interesting. Sorry, go ahead. So instead of, yeah, and uh, substance abuse, you would call this the harm reduction model and, yeah. you know, versus total sobriety. And so you're against any sort of harm reduction and would, you know, advocate for actual gaming sobriety, gaming porn sobriety. Yes. No. Mm. And the reason why I'm going to tell you why is because yeah. with any other hard drug, 
you have to be a lot more active and intentional about going out, getting it. And there's a lot more energy and probably money that goes into it. And also it's not accepted by society for the most part. If we like any online activity, be it playing games, being watching YouTube or anything like that, it's socially accepted. It's pushed in front of everyone's face. And nowadays everyone has access to the internet. They don't know what it means. I say they, and I'm generalizing. Uh, excessive gamers don't know what it means to have a normal day without that internet connection and the games. Yeah. What is that like once you're trying to remove that behavior? How much pushback do you get? Yeah. So it's really interesting because parents have just as hard of a time as the gaming addict because they feel like it's painful. They don't want to see their, their kid go through whatever it is. And also they don't want to have to deal with it. That's kind of the reason why they allowed them to play games so much is because it quelled any emotional problems in the household. So again, it's not just about the addict. It's also about the family unit as a whole restructuring itself. And by the way, I also bring in uh, the parents to be like, okay, you need to limit the amount that you're on your phones too and, and your computers. This isn't just going to be a, it's his problem. It's your son's problem. It's the family's problem. The family's having issues because of this. So, and then the pushback from the gamer, it's really interesting because I've had a slew of different responses to it because some of them will break down crying. Like, and this is a major loss for them. They have friends online. This isn't just taking away a substance. You're taking away part of their connection. So we talk about what that's going to be like for them to adjust because we don't cut them off completely. We all give them, let's say like a week or two weeks. And technically it's the parents. It's like, you have two weeks to let your friends know. You can call us assholes or whatever. You have two weeks to get this in line where you figure out how you're still going to stay in communication with them. And then from there, kids, the gamer, it's hard for them to accept it. Some of them are like, yes, this has become a problem. But a lot of them are obviously not happy because now that means whatever they're distracting themselves with, with the games, they kind of have to deal with it now. They feel shitty about themselves. Okay, so let's explore that. That's not the end result. That's not just because you feel it right now. It doesn't mean that's how you're going to feel in like a month, two months, something like that. We need to work this out. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. This is just the beginning. That's part of like the messaging that I give to them. It's not over just because this part of your life has shifted. And I wanted to ask you about some of the parallels that you see working in treatment with substance abuse and with the gaming and porn addictions. And it reminded me, you know, when I worked in treatment, one of the things that I would say to somebody who had just came in was the hardest part of this isn't might not be just giving up the substance. It's going to be sitting with those emotions for the first time and maybe ever. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good point. It's whatever they, they were using, right? They were trying to get away from something. There was something overwhelming to them. And over time, you just learn how to cope uh, using the substance, using video games, whatever the addiction may, may be, you emotionally cope using that. It becomes a safety blanket in a weird way. Yeah. It's your primary distraction. So when you're taking the games away, now they've got all this free time. What are they? And now they're sitting in those emotions and they're having to maybe look at the things that they've been pushing away for who knows, maybe years. What do you fill that with? How do you, what's that step like? Absolutely. So I try to instill, we'll say, into the new family structure. Yes, you're going to have a lot of time. So let's try and, like you say, like fill it with something. What do you like to do? I have no idea. Oh, okay. 
Well, let's try and explore things. So if you remember the risk taking uh, that we were talking about earlier, there's that fear of risk of trying something new. That's partially explored during this step because the first two weeks when, if you want to call it like a dopamine detox or, or something like that, the first two weeks is where your brain is still readjusting to where normal things like, let's say, reading a book, playing an instrument or doing something mundane. All of those things, you'll get like a small hit of dopamine. There's a reward that you feel. There's a satisfaction that you get from those things. During the first two weeks, if your brain has been overloaded with dopamine, your brain needs to, to reset. And so you're, after the two weeks, it resets to the point where you start feeling those type of like small reward hits again. So it's weird because it is kind of like a detox where you have to get stabilized. Like that's the stabilization period. And then after that, they're going to be bored out of their minds. And what normally happens is they'll find something to do. So usually they'll stay up in the room or, or do something along those lines, but then they're just bored. They have literally nothing to do all day. So then they're like, okay, well, let's go do something. One of my clients, it completely surprised his parents. He started gardening. He planted like his own vet, like he, they never knew that he was into something like this and he found it and it was astonishing to them. And it's like, that's what this is. I get that you think that you won't, when they ask, what am I going to do? The real question is, what am I going to do? That's as stimulating as gaming. Nothing, nothing is as stimulating as gaming or pornography. We have to find you something else that's not going to be as stimulating, but guess what? It's going to be more gratifying, more long-lasting, and satisfying for you. That's got to be a really yeah. hard, so, hard message to get across, though. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Uh, I let the parents know. It's like, this isn't going to be easy yeah. because they're not going to accept it at first because it's something that they mm -hmm. have to choose themselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> the way that we put the family structure is... We're not just like, this isn't about taking the, the games from you, although that's a big part of it. Electronics in our household has had a major negative impact on our family. We are not happy with that. We want our family back. So in our household, this is no longer acceptable. So that's where it, it comes from. And then, you know, uh, the Gaming Act has the response that they're going to have, but parents have to remain stable in their decision going forward with it. It's not an easy message. Go ahead. Yeah. Which like you said, is, is one of the hardest parts because, you know, a big reason that the addiction might've gotten started in the first place was that the parent didn't want to deal with the behaviors, outbursts, uh, right. constant demands. And so, you know, they throw a screen at them and before you know it, you know, then pulling that screen away is more challenging than anything else. It, they it's feel amazing. like no. hypocrites. They no. gave the screen to the kid in the first place. They no. may have bought them their computer. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I know you got to go here soon, but I might be opening up mm -hmm. a uh, quite the the can of worms here with uh, maybe my sure. last question. But and maybe I'm making an assumption here, but I imagine it's gaming and porn are mm -hmm. primarily young men's addictions. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it is primarily just young men that really get attached? Okay, so that's a really good question, and you're right. That is kind of a, a can of worms at this point. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, for, we'll have to do an episode. From, yeah, I know, right? Part two. In my opinion, I feel like there's messages out there that make it a little bit more unsafe to be take on the role of being like a male, at least in like a Western society nowadays. So if we go to pornography and gaming, 
I talked about this before, right? Um, they're able to get that sense of satisfaction and reward and achievement through the gaming. And then sexually, they're able to get whatever they need from uh, from porn. And I mean, if we get into like uh, this societal part of it, there's been a lot of you know negative messages towards essentially like being a male. If we talk more about like, I'm not even sure how to, to categorize it, but there are phrases out there like the, the patriarchy, which is essentially the thing that's kept everyone else down except for white males, toxic masculinity, there's um, mansplaining, which is interesting because like, I understand where those things, where those ideas have come from. And some people have taken it too far, where now you trying to communicate sometimes can be seen as a negative and you're kind of taking away your power as an individual just because of those. I guess it's like it's stereotyping from the other side, right? Like, I don't know. It, it feels like there's an opposition rather than a stance to try and, and understand each other. If we talk about males and females or like, it doesn't matter what group you're a part of. Like I have this idea and I try and use it in therapy where we have our own unique, spontaneous experiences. And when you go online, and we had, had talked about this prior, because uh, you and I are kind of interested in like what taking the red pill actually means, right? And to sort of maybe summarize kind of what you're saying, and I actually saw this on Instagram yesterday uh, in somebody's comments was, you know, all men are trash. And I think those messages get internalized. And I think, you know, then young men feel like maybe it's toxic masculinity to be empowered, to have some agency, to go after their dreams, to have some ambition, to, like you said, maybe take risks. And yeah, I don't know. It, it's definitely a topic that I'd love to to go down the rabbit hole with you more and more, because really, I, I think the messaging that, that just men in general, both old and young, are getting these days is, I mean, it's really kind of all over the place. And I think men are uh, just struggling in general to, you know, maybe redefine their place in the world so right and so a, a huge struggle that i see at least with my clientele is what does it mean to be a man in society today what and it's weird to think of it as having like what's it okay what's permissive i guess which is such a weird question to ask like why why does that need to be asked right like what part of the masculine i guess species <laughs> is okay because, you know, there's something internal in, in all men, whatever that is. And man, I, we definitely need more time on this. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, for sure. Uh, our next episode, we'll, uh, we'll dive deep into yeah. uh, the, the messaging men are getting these days. Uh, Josh, thank Absolutely. you so much for joining us on uh, Hey Man, It's Okay. Everybody out there, please like, comment, subscribe. Let us know what you think. Let us know if there's a particular topic you want us to uh, to touch upon in the future. And Josh, also uh, let us know uh, where we can find you out there. Do you have any uh, anything coming up or website? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want more and see what my services are about or what I'm about, gamingaddictioncounseling.com. And you can check it out. Phone number, emails, all there. Again, gamingaddictioncounseling.com. Josh, you are so knowledgeable when it comes on uh, onto the subject and uh, it really sounds like you're making a difference out there. And uh, yeah, I really, uh, really appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks, man. And thank you for uh, having me on today. Thank you, man. All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day.